Hello and welcome to episode one officially of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. My name is Robert Young and I'm here today with my co-host and friend, Rebecca O'Hare. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode one formally of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the introduction podcast and certainly I'm sure you will agree, Rebecca, from the amazing feedback we've had through all of the social media and our email, which has blown up somewhat, the response has been pretty positive, I think. Absolutely. I would say at the risk of sounding a little bit old, it was totes emotion, Rob. Totes emotion. <laughs> totes emotion. Wow. I can't believe we've actually put that in the podcast. It, but it has, it has actually been a bit totes emotion. That first couple of days was the response just pretty much melted my phone. Yeah, me too. There was like likes and retweets and comments on LinkedIn and we were pretty busy on Twitter, but that's okay because it meant that the podcast that we have created and will create over the next um, couple of weeks has struck a chord with you that people want to hear it and that there's a need for it. So that is makes us really happy. Our job is done. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're going to continue to do. That whole ethos of this podcast will continue. It's filling that gap in that area and trying to make it as exciting and interesting as possible for you. And we really hope today is a continuation of that. But... Before we get on to all of that, we do have something pretty fun and special to share with you. That first day, which we mentioned when we released that first introductory podcast, was a very strange day. It was a lot of engagement online, really positive feedback. But probably the strangest moment came in the evening when I was sort of relaxing, finally turning my phone off and getting into bed and relaxing, thinking, oh, it's been a great day. And then Rebecca texts me about someone who has done something for the show Rebecca elaborate yeah so somebody who wants to remain anonymous um took the time to write us wait for it a jingle for the show this isn't something that we asked them to do they just decided that um yeah they're gonna write us a jingle they wrote lyrics chords they sat down sang it recorded with their guitar and then sent it to me via whatsapp of which i couldn't believe that someone had taken the time to do that because it's a pretty nice thing to do um and then i sent it to rob who just burst out laughing when he um listened to it so as well as lovely text messages and you know posts on linkedin we've got a jingle and now we're like do we make this the official jingle of the show and we are going to let you decide that so we're going to ha- let you have a little listen to the jingle right now and tell us what you think about it i only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me are you busy tonight i say i might be playing xbox i've caught chicken pox or any other excuse they could say there'll be a man bleeding fights i were walking a high wire no i never mean to be rude i'm never really interested not even when they've instead it unless they say there's free drinks and food So, thoughts, yay, nay, do you love it, do you hate it? We absolutely love it. I burst out laughing when I heard it, so did Rob. And so what we're going to do is, when this podcast goes live, to prove that you've listened to the podcast, we're going to have a Twitter poll, and you can tell us if yes, this should be the official jingle, or no, scrap the jingle. But we think we're going to say yes, because it's so awesome. I think we might have to. It legitimately is the best thing ever. It was the most surreal thing, just someone... writing a jingle on like day one of the podcast was very very strange but really endearing and quite amazing so we we are big fans but ultimately this is a podcast for you out there so you can decide so keep an eye out on twitter for it yeah let us know your thoughts tweet message answer the poll it'll be up on twitter when this episode goes live we'd love to hear your feedback from it 
especially considering we took so long in deciding the music that goes along with this podcast. I'll be slightly loath to, to get rid of that as the intro. However, the, the jingle is so good that I think I will be voting yay, but ultimately the decision is yours. Now, anyway, enough chit chats. Let's move on to the show at hand today. We're very fortunate to have two amazing individuals lined up for you. Eric Stoller and Tyler Shores have both taken time out of their very busy jam-packed schedules to share with us some amazing insights, not only on the work they do and the experience they have, but also to provide some really useful hints, tips, tricks to utilize social media professionally and personally, but also technology and higher education and how everything is progressing. We had an amazing chat with both of them. We're going to start with Eric. Eric is based in the US at the moment. And it was a really fascinating chat we had with him. It covered pretty much everything there was in technology and higher education. So let's hear what Eric had to say. Eric is the current VP of Digital Strategy at Gecko Engage, the leading provider of higher education chatbots. His current focus is on how conversational technologies can provide around-the-clock support to enhance the student experience. Eric has a background in student affairs, having previously worked at the University of Illinois at Chicago and Oregon State University. He has experience in academic advising, the first year experience, digital identity, wellness, orientation, technology and communications, and is a leading expert in how technology can be used for student engagement, recruitment, retention and well-being. However, we think he is a pro at delivering engaging and memorable presentations, especially when they include pictures of cats in space, which we will talk about later on. Eric Stoller, you are extremely welcome to the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. We're sorry we have no food for you because right now you are in the States and Rob and I are in the UK, but we're so excited to have you on board. So thank you for carving some time out of your schedule today. Woo! Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and I, I love the like, however, <laughs> on the intro. Really nice. Thank you. No problem. Um, as everybody would have just heard that you have so much experience um, in student affairs and tech. Um, but I'm really interested in how you spent your time in HE and tell us a bit more about that and, you know, how you got in there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just always loved education, you know, as a kid. And when I went off to, to college, I, I never thought I would end up working in higher ed as sort of a career. Uh, it just sort of happened by chance that when I was in Chicago, I I had opportunity to interview for a position with the University of Illinois at Chicago working within student services. And I landed the role. Uh, it was just a, you know, entry level marketing specialist position. And I loved it. And I was really fortunate in that they let me sort of explore a lot of different areas within student affairs and, and you know, like student conduct and, and kind of like communication and career services and a lot of events and wellness as well. And eventually someone asked me where I went to graduate school. And I uh, actually said, I, you know, I hadn't I'd gone to graduate school. I don't know what you're talking about. And I ended up going to get my master's degree at Oregon State, as you uh, mentioned uh, in the in the intro. And I've just I've just sort of loved working in higher ed ever since and I haven't left. I I did a sort of a nine year stint as a consultant where I worked with universities and you know, colleges and institutions kind of all over the globe, really. Um, and then wrote for Inside Higher Ed as well with the Student Affairs and Technology blog. And then now I have this role with with Gecko Engage where I'm still working within higher education. I'm just on the the vendor side of things now for the first time. You know, a, a sort of an additional piece to that for me anyway, as I've had a chance to think about it a bit more, is just that, you know, I've always been someone who liked technology as well. 
And so it's sort of, you know, it's provided me, higher ed has, with a place where I can kind of have these ideas and thoughts around, you know, student success, but also how technology plays a part into that, which is why, you know, I've always been involved with, you know, early days, it was like, how could you use the web to provide you know, resources for students? And then it was, how can you provide uh, resources and contact and engagement with students with social media? And now it's sort of, how can you support students from a success perspective with artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and, and you know, and sort of the next thing? Yeah. And I think it's also a case that, as you highlighted, higher ed acts as such a wonderful base for self-development and student development but also it, it ultimately is a place of thinking and learning and it's a place where things like technology has thrived because everyone in it has purposes to use it for we've got some of the brightest minds in the world in higher ed on both the professional services or student affairs side and the academic side and it it kind of just ends up being this hub of development and I guess that's the same with technology we bring it in and, and see how it flourishes and who uses what and how it's it's kind of just a hotbed of ability to think and to create absolutely and so eric would you say that um because obviously you're based in the us but you have worked in the uk for a number of years do you think attitudes to technology in the us differ to the uk at all whether that's just generally or in the he sector it's a great question i, I think that you know, there's some cultural stuff there, but at the same time, there, I'd say attitudes are about the same. You know, there's sort of, a, you know, there's always that sense of, will the technology be something that's super useful for us? Well, will it, you know, be costly? Um, it, you know, are we going to be investing in something over the long term? Uh, and, and what does that look like? And, and usually sort of the, I guess the ultimate question a lot of times people have is, is it going to take my job? Uh, and, and that's almost never the case, uh, even though there's a perception there. Um, so I think when you really take the technology out of the, the equation or out of the conversation, it always comes down to sort of organizational culture and, and things like leadership and, you know, be, are people rewarded for experimenting with new things? Uh, how do you incorporate new technologies into uh, the plan for, you know, say student success for this year or, you know, for the next five years? And, and what does that look like? I am. I had worked with an organization that was looking at chatbots and I think they initially started with um, more of a live chat um, set up before getting into chatbots. Um, and there was this concern around like, you know, will it take someone's role? Will it actually, rather than save us time, will it like take more time in terms of having to keep an eye on it? What if, you know, the responses the chatbot gives isn't accurate enough and that then means the person on the other end wants a real person to talk to him, not a bot. Are they the kind of things that are coming through as concerns as well? Yeah, I mean, the thing with chatbots is that, you know, they they almost have to deal with the baggage of yesteryear you know, because the the technologies of old when it came to bots weren't as good as they are now. And so I think people have this perception that the you know the way chatbots are today uh, is based on kind of the perception from what they used to be, uh, and so I think that's where you know the the technology has gotten so much better. You know, for example, our our chatbot uses IBM Watson uh, on the back end to really deliver this experience where we always say up front, you're chatting with a bot, you're not chatting with a person. But at the same time, the response back and forth in terms of how it feels is very conversational. And so uh, the ability to train these bots to make them essentially smarter and smarter and smarter as they go on is really where the magic happens, because you're absolutely right. You know, the perception if, if, if someone was chatting with a bot and they weren't able to get the response that they were looking for, 
there could be some frustration there. But at the end of the day, that frustration becomes a, a sort of a bit of information that goes back into the bot for the next student, and it makes it better for more and more people. Uh, and if it doesn't work, you know, if the bot isn't able to answer a question, that's where the technology has become so advanced where you can sort of set it to say, okay, well, that's that's fine. Now a person will inter- engage with you either now or maybe tomorrow because maybe it's a, a Sunday evening type of interaction and no one's around at the office. But Monday morning, you'll get an email or maybe a text message or a phone call to respond to your query. Yeah, exactly. I suppose like any technology, it's only ever as good as the people designing it in essence you know it's it's about what you're putting into it just as much as what you expect to get out and I think a lot of people with chatbots I would presume anyway correct me if I'm wrong but would would make those assumptions as Rebecca said what if it, it doesn't give the right information what if it goes down the road but the reality is although it's artificial intelligence it, it's still artificial therefore it has to be created so yes it's intelligent but it's only potentially as intelligent as those who are structuring it, who put the contextual indicators in, the questions, the responses. And I guess that's where I feel a lot of people forget where the human plays a part in technology. It's it's an assistive technology. It's not a replacement. It's It's still designed by people, created by people, and invested in by people. Exactly. I mean, it's a partnership in, in that sense. And so you're always going to have people involved with it. You're, you're, I think the, the idea when it comes to new technology, and there's probably some sort of like psychological term for it, but people always have this sense of dissonance when it comes to new tech. Uh, and and they, they forget about the fact that, you know, maybe they have web pages on their site that are still providing misinformation because they haven't been updated in years. You know, if you look at an institution's web profile, they have so many pages of content that haven't been updated in a long, long time. And yet, you know, they'll critique a chatbot because I think that's just human nature to sort of overly critique the latest technology. And these bots today are so much better. Uh, in terms of being able to answer questions. And, and, you know, I think some of our bots have these ridiculously high sort of student satisfaction numbers where they're answering something like 90%, 95% of all questions uh, in, in like a five-minute conversational time frame. And so you think about a bot. We had one of our bots that was on an on a institution's website solely focused on international student recruitment. And it answered something like 3,300 questions uh, or conversations, I should say, not just questions, because, you know, conversation could have tons and tons of questions, but it answers how all these conversations happen in a month's time. And you think about, you know, how many people would have to be involved to cover those questions 24, 7, 365, and it's just not possible. And so the bot is essentially another member of staff. And so if you, if you set them up for success, they will be successful. And I think that's where, in our case, we do a week of onboarding with our clients where we come out and really work with teams from all over campus to get the bot up and running and to sort of build in this sense of everybody's helping to make this bot successful so that then it serves students in all the ways that it can. I love that you talk about the chatbot as being like a member of the team and, you know, bring this to life almost. It's like, you know, the robots taking over kind of scenario, (laughs) uh, but not taking over. We're in partnership. Um, So I really love that kind of idea. But like you said, it does come back down to, you know, the um, culture within an organization. Are they an organization that is accepting of change or open to change and to try new things? Or is it they're a bit guarded and closed off and go, that's not for me. It could be for other people. 
Absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of of when I did a lot of work working with institutions on using social media for engagement, uh, for from just teaching and learning to student affairs work. And uh, again, the organizational culture piece is what comes up time and time again. And I'm not surprised if uh, if I'm honest. Um, but you know, you've talked about there a lot about the different ways in which chatbots can be chatbots can be utilized. Um, and you probably have lots of examples. Um, so how are they influencing the HE sector right now? What are the ways in which people are using them or can use them? Yeah, I think they, they really started gaining a lot of traction in the admissions side of things and recruitment, uh, mainly because those are the areas that have a bit more resource in terms of budget. Uh, you know, recruiting students is, is a big deal for institutions, especially in the States. Um, and in the UK, it's kind of become more and more of a thing as, you know, the enrollment caps were lifted uh, and it became a bit more of a free for all. And so there's a lot more sort of data collection. You, you go and you have this interaction with a chatbot, you know, and we get you get a name, you get an email, you get a phone number, and that can go in sort of the recruitment database for a prospective student. Uh, and then it also, one of the things I always love about these bots when it comes to an admissions perspective is that it informs everyone on the team, uh, what are the key themes? What are the key questions? What is it that comes up over and over again for students? Because you can keep track of these things on the back end side of things. And so you can track, you know, well, maybe we need to do a better job of presenting this information here on our website or when we have people speaking to groups of students or on some of our print collateral even. Uh, and so the chatbot almost is this, this thing gathering valuable intelligence that you can then feed back into how you engage with students elsewhere. And it's to me, it's one of the neatest things about it. Like for me, I, th I think it's important we move to this more technological approach. And I guess what I'd like to ask you is, and I presume you've had this question a million times, but what do you say to staff who are trying to implement these kind of things and who are just being met with resistance? Because I think it's happening quite a lot and I, 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 it's hard to kind of know where to break through and how to convince people to get on board. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. It almost, that was the core of my consultancy in many ways for the, you know, the run from 2010 to 2019, whereas people had these, these issues internally that they were facing. And I think that's where Again, if you can show results, if you can show peer institutions who are doing something similar, I think that's all. That was is always a great way to sort of think about how you can unlock those doors. Because if you could say, "Well, guess what? The institution down the road, they're doing this thing that you have said is not possible. Uh, they they've been able to sort of figure out the budget issue. They've been able to figure out you know the staffing issue or the the technology overhead issue, what have you. And I think that's that's useful. And then oftentimes it's about getting the senior leader who is the one who is maybe standing in the way of the, the, the you know, the decision uh, alone in a room to just have a chat around what it is that, that is the actual issue at hand. Because sometimes people don't want to, people don't want to sort of admit or share things uh, in a room full of people uh, around, hey, I don't know really why this is a big deal or why we should use it when it comes to technology. Uh, even though, ironically, we're at institutions of higher ed where learning new things is at the core of all of it. And so I, I think, you know, it's a very common thing, especially within student affairs, because student affairs, historically speaking, has all been about sort of, you know, human to human interactions. And, and technology was sort of seen as, you know, well, we don't want to get in there because what we do, the strength of our profession uh, is about people as opposed to tech. Well, of course, 
even you know back in the day they were using technology it's not as if they weren't using things like i don't know typewriters or the fax machine or you know we've sort of evolved over time and we're using you know the web and social and chatbots and these new technologies to enhance things and to amplify our ability to reach all students i mean i think that's why historically student affairs the profession has really struggled with serving online students because we don't have that background of working with people in an only like an online only environment and 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 i think at the end of the day we look at learners most learners are in a blended environment anyway they're doing online they're doing on campus and why wouldn't you want to use the latest and greatest technologies uh, to provide them with as many resources and tools as possible and so i think when you en encounter that resistance from an organizational perspective it's literally about sort of coming in and finding you know the right keys to unlock the right doors to get to a place where everyone has sort of bought into the solution understand its understands its value and gets it online or up and going as quickly as possible to help provide that enhancement to the student experience do you think, Eric, there's a, a lot of fear around new technologies? It's it's interesting, you know, just setting up this podcast, myself and Rob learned a lot of new things that we didn't know before, but we were okay with that. We knew that we would learn some new things. And also, you know, contacting people for interviews that we thought would be great in the podcast, future episodes. You know, a lot of people are like, I don't know how to use technology. I'm not great at the tech side of things. We found that there was a lot of fear from some people because they hadn't tried things before or um, they felt they didn't have the skill set. So do you, does that come up quite a lot um, in the work that you do? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, people forget what it was like when they were a little kid, when you could just sort of, you know, play and, and build and create and knock something over and it wasn't the end of the world. And I, and I think for some reason, when it comes to technology, people have this reaction, you know, I call it the snake bite where, you know, people will start to do something with tech and then they'll just recoil their hands away from it as if, you know, they've just destroyed a massive thing. And that's not usually the case. And, and I'm always, I, I think part of it has to do with you, you know, it comes back to good teaching really. And it comes back to, you know, when you're trying to teach what is it that the learner needs? What is it that someone actually needs in order to understand a topic or a concept uh, to go from, you know, maybe base level competency to intermediate to advanced? And I think with technology, sorry, IT people, but in some ways I blame you for some of this because there was this, this attitude, uh, uh, not, not so much now, but in the past where IT would sort of swoop in and they'd have all the answers. They'd take your computer away or Save they would- the day. Yeah, they would have the master password and username and they would do something and they but they wouldn't show you how they did it. You know, I think I think it's like it's like baking, right? If 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 someone just like put a bunch of flour in front of you and then 5 minutes later there was a cake, you think they were a wizard and and you wouldn't have any sort of concept of what the process was in between. And I think that's where IT in the past anyway, uh they've had real issue with sort of holding that knowledge to themselves whereas, you know, get people in a room, get them figuring it out. You know, there's a lot of trepidation people have around just using social media. I mean, you think about, you know, what's the trepidation going to be like when it comes to setting up a chat bot, which is why, and I love this, you know, we just had our head of implementation, you know, he was in the U.S. and he was doing three week-long implementations with three different institutions. And that's where, you know what, you have a question that you think is silly, ask the question and everyone gets a chance to sort of hash it out, work through it, and then bam, you have a chat bot up and running in a week's time. 
with regards to social media, um, what do institutions get wrong or sometimes underestimate? Oh, how much time do we have? Three days. Not too long. I've got to edit this. Not <laughs> too long. Exactly. <laughs> the editor's shocking this in. Not too long. I'll just go on and on. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, part of it is when an institution thinks they have to vet everything, you know, like here's a, a, a tweet that is fairly simple and there's this sort of sense of, well, it's got to go through a committee. Uh, and there's a bit of hyperbole there with that statement. But Hopefully. we love committees, Eric. We love I, committees. We, uh, my favorite, of course, was when I was at Oregon State, they literally have the committee on committees that is assigned oh, wow. to sort of chair and figure out what committees are supposed to do. I mean, it's like, an, it's like committee inception after a while. <laughs> uh, like how many that's levels a, can you go? That's amazing. And, and I, think, I, I think that one of the things maybe they get wrong is just that um, there's so many different priorities when it comes to institutions, uh, sort of marketing, brand, recruitment, news, uh, internal, external engagement, research, uh, scholarship, and everyone's trying to sort of figure out how they can get their story out there. Uh, and so I think sometimes the main channels can get a little bit clogged or um, sometimes there's a fear that this won't you know, be the right tone or, or, or whatnot. But I think that there's so much that HE is doing right with social media nowadays. I think that's that's the, the beauty of it. I think that, you know, Facebook came out in, what was it, 2004 and, and Twitter came out in 2006. Um, these have been with us for a long time. Uh, and I know. I was having a think the other day about how long I'm on I've I have been on social media and I've been on social media like 15 years and that actually scared the hell out of me. One of the the slides that I frequently show when I'm giving a presentation is this slide that shows just as many social media icons as possible. And, and I just sort of ask people in the audience, you know, do you recognize this one, that one? We just kind of go over it and there's some a few laughs and everything. And the But the, the, the reason I do that is to just show to people that it's okay not to know all of them. And not to feel like you have to be expert at all of them either. I think that that's mm. where, you know, it's human nature. Again, again, these things come up back and forth to sort of just like trends with people, right? So when it comes to social media, if you feel like you have to be an expert with all the platforms, you're never going to be very good at any of them rather than you know, picking one or two or three and, and sort of delving into that and getting some level of fluency and competence and confidence uh, to feel that this is something you can use. And I think that's where you know, when institutions struggle is when they think, okay, we got to be on the latest and greatest. But at the same time, you look at some of the numbers still for Facebook and it's, it's ludicrous how many people are using Facebook mm -hmm. worldwide or Twitter or YouTube or Instagram or WhatsApp. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, even Pinterest, you know, we, we always forget about Pinterest because they don't make as much noise, but they're, I think they're like top five, top 10, at least social media, uh, worldwide. Uh, and they're generating income. So I think when it comes to, you know, institutionally, you've always got new students coming in, but they're not always going to be, you know, they're not the same, you know, kind of age demographic. You've got different experiences. You've got, you know, different people from different countries. And so, you know, yeah, you're going to be using perhaps Weibo and WeChat uh, and, you know, and maybe um, line or, you know, something else. If you're going to be trying to work with students in Asia, uh, you know, WhatsApp is, is globally dominant and yet very, uh, few people use it by compare by comparison to Facebook messenger in the U S. Um, and so you've got to be thinking about sort of audience and niche. And there's also the fact that everyone loves to say things like, well, students don't use this particular channel. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value either. 
And, and mm-hmm. so I think that's, that's, that's the challenge that I think institutions face because there is so much nuance and there is so much sort of widespread use. And the, 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 the numbers now are out of this world. You know, you could get 500 million people using an app and people say, well, that's pretty good, but it's nowhere near a billion, um, <laughs> which is mind blowing. And, and I, true. I, and I think, you know, Rob, you know, to your point around people have this, this sort of like almost anxiety around it. Like I can't, mm-hmm. they just keep coming. Yeah. They're going to keep coming. And I think that's just the nature of technology. It has kind of felt like we've kind of had some sort of just sort of stalling out a little bit, uh, because these, these companies have gotten so big and, you know, Facebook just continues to sort of just steal everyone else's innovation. Uh, but yet again, I read about the new, um, the new 20 pound polymer banknote and oh, yeah. uh, the other day, and Snapchat's and I, involved. yeah, and they're going to use Snapchat filters. Or lenses, I should say. So it's like, hang on, what? Sorry, back up. They're, yeah, they're come using on, sna- stick, stay, stay up to date, man. <laughs> wow, this oh, is Rob, how where out have of you touch been? Where have so you hang been? on, someone's going to have to explain this to me. That's They've okay. released a new twenty-pound note, and then okay. there's like a Snapchat filter that, if you hold it over the note, it brings the note to life. No. And it's um, it's got the Turner painting on it, so it brings like the painting to life. Yeah, wow. where have you been, Rob? That news oh, so is like so yesterday. Under, sorry, I've been living under a cave for the last week or so. I, I just uh, well, came out father, today. Uh, please tell my father hello from me then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's, yeah, I left him there. He's pretty comfortable, to be honest. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't want to speak of your father. I'm sure. I'm sure he's not under a cave at all. I had no idea. That's that's madness. So is that so? That's using Snapchat rather than something. That, well, I suppose it is still a form of AR. I guess, isn't it? Exactly. What I also think there's sort of like hips, sort of like, are they trying to be so cool and hip that they were like, we'll do Snapchat, even though maybe they should have done it in Instagram instead. I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, it's all about Insta stories, surely. So Eric, do you think, um, you know, you've mentioned Facebook quite a bit there and like most people think Facebook is on the way out and obviously the bad press they've got in recent years and whatnot with data and everything else, um, which is a completely different podcast episode and not relevant for this podcast. But do you think people are going to potentially leave social media platforms in favor of others in the way that some people are leaving Facebook because their parents are on it or their grandparents are on it? I have thought about leaving Facebook on numerous occasions because my mom is on it and she comments on everything. <laughs> Hi, mom, I know you're listening. Um, do you think that will happen for other platforms? I think, you know, people are just bad with nuance and sort of gray anyway when it comes to almost everything. And I think social media just sort of brings that more to life because it's very visible. So, of course, people are going to, you know, say they're going to leave this or that or they're going to shift around to different things. And, and it kind of becomes a thing where then the media covers it because maybe a high profile person is is leaving something or leaving Facebook. And I I think that, yeah, I I people will will come and go and, and they always have. And I think that at the moment, Facebook is still sort of the dominant player in at least just users uh, per, per month or whatever. But, you know, this all could, you know, never fall in love with the tools has been one of my mantras because hmm. Twitter could could mess up essentially and it goes away. And then what? Uh, Facebook goes away. Uh, you know, look at look at just sort of like broadcast television versus you know streaming. Streaming now is just you know there's all these different players out there, and you know what's it going to look like? You know, to pop open a screen ten years from now, and it's going to be all these streaming providers, and or and, or will it be? You know, so I think it's it's sort of you know we always love to sort of talk about the issues of now as well as predict what's going to happen down the road. And I think there's the, the only constant is that 
change is just the norm. And hopefully Facebook won't be sort of, you know, part of these sort of bigger issues societally that we we know that they have been. I think that's really where it comes down to oversight and, you know, in some sense of, well, we don't want to be manipulated by our social media. We want to mm. use it for good uh, rather than evil. Mm. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. I love that phrase, don't fall in love with the tools. That's such a great phrase. I'm going to have to remember that because that that is perfectly encapsulates the issue that we have really in the complete diversity of new social medias that are coming alive all the time. I remember uh, Yik Yak, was it Yik Yak that came out probably about three or four years ago, had a massive surge and then something, quite a few things just went horribly wrong and then it disappeared. And I guess that's, that's the principle of it. You can't always commit to something. And again, this is the difficulty for the sector, I suppose, because you've got that conflict of people who are agile and want to change platform and keep on touch with everything. But you then do sometimes have the, the overarching, well, you know, we want to see every post you make. We're committed to these channels. And I think flexibility within higher ed can sometimes be quite challenging. So many institutions I see at the bottom of their website, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and that's it. And they're often the ones that perhaps don't have that institutional agility to do that. And and that, I guess, is is the necessary thing for the sector is agility is so important nowadays. Yeah. And build, building it into positions too. I think that, you know, when you hire people, mm-hmm. you, you hire the, you know, individuals and, and say to them that this is just part of the job. Um, and I think, and you reward them for that too. I think that's another aspect, you know, sort of what motivates people, you know, if I, if I'm rewarded for trying new things, I will try new things. Uh, but if there's some sort of sense of, you know, even if it's like an urban legend around, if I try something new, you know, the, the senior administration is going to come down hard on me, then I won't. And it's it sort of, you know, I think people have this sense that the only thing they can do is release something that's perfect. And, and there's that great sort of line that, you know, perfection always leads to stagnation because you never move, you never do anything because so you're always, you're, you're seeking something that's unattainable. It's, it's so true. And, um, you know, you talked a lot about there about rewarding people for um, you trying new things um, and building it into job descriptions. But also, I think it's important that we compensate people who take on extra duties to run a Twitter account or a Facebook account as part of the department. Or um, if they're wor- working in accommodation, for example, where I've seen it crop up quite a bit, because sometimes, you know, someone will go, oh, you run that account. You you like that stuff. You're good at that. But actually, there's a lot of work involved in doing it and doing it well. And it's not often compensated. Absolutely. I mean, that that is so true. I think that you know, the idea that this sort of extra labor is going to just be an okay thing, you know, and when I've, I've always advocated for building, you know, social media strategy and implementation, uh, creation and all that and measurement into positions and roles so that it's not just an extra thing, kind of other duties as assigned, because it is such a massive aspect. Uh, Because all of a sudden, overnight, you've created people who are ambassadors for your institution uh, throughout various departments who have a lot of power and influence in what they can do, mm. and yet you're not rewarding them appropriately. And if they, you know, if and when they leave their role, that that technique and skill and experience goes with them because you you have set it up in such a way where the person you hire next, that doesn't mean they have that skill. That doesn't mean they have that experience because it was sort of extra to the person who was in the role before. 
Yeah, it was someone who kind of had the um, initiative to maybe suggest it or take it on or, you know, start the account in the first place. Exactly. And I get asked quite often um, about using social media in a professional capacity. So, you know, I always tell people that I use social media, particularly Twitter, to get to know people in the sector, to kind of like infiltrate the sector and network a bit better and, you know, connect people like yourself, Eric and Rob. Um, What pieces of advice would you give to people who are keen to kind of put themselves out there a little bit more, but are still a bit scared to do it? Yeah, well, you know, I always wonder how, you know, people walk down the street or, you know, pr- progress through life when, you know, social media is just a reflection of who you are in, in real life. And so, you know, for example, you all aren't, you know, in my living room right now. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I think about social media as sort of segmented into pockets uh, of my life. And so, you know, Facebook and Instagram, those are very private spaces for me because that's where I share a lot of stuff with my friends and family. Uh, and it's not for work. Uh, whereas Twitter and LinkedIn, very professional, yet, you know, obviously cats with, with uh, you know, floating in space, gifts and whatnot. I, I, I love how that's sort of become professional. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, if someone's thinking about, I guess you know, we used to call it sort of maybe building your personal brand, but what it means nowadays is just like using social media uh, in, in a way that sort of spans your entire life. And, and, and so if you're going to be doing it for work, find those channels that work well uh, for your work projects and outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if it feels like you're sharing too much stuff that's personal, it's you, you have control to do that. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's where people have to realize they're, they're always going to be in control. Control, I think, is a very common theme uh, that seems to come out quite a lot when I talk to people about anything like this. I mean, I have, I have that same, I've had that same conversation with myself about my presence on social media. And a big part of this podcast, which was somewhat of a hesitation at first for me, was also I I don't want to necessarily commit myself to a prolonged period of development of identity online on things like Twitter or wherever, because just for me, social media doesn't play as big a part in my life. So control is something I think a lot of people get very hung up about. I can relate to that to a certain degree. Well, I mean, loads of food for thought there. Um, And that was like a really interesting conversation about chatbots and social media and what to do, what not to do. Um, Before we let you go completely, Eric, we have um, a fun flash round for you uh, because we like to have fun on the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. And we think you might be up for this, um, which hopefully you are. And you're not sitting there going, oh, my God, what are they going to make me do? Yeah, a total look of horror on my face right now. Yeah. It's, it's fine, don't worry. It's it's not enforced fun at all. I love enforced fun. I work in red life. <laughs> oh yeah, is, is it a group activity? Yeah, is it an icebreaker? I was just going to say, there's no icebreakers involved. <laughs> Maybe right, this is where we need to bribe you with pizza. I think we might we might need to we might need to have some bribery here. Sounds good to me. No, no. What we're going to do basically is we got a quick fire round, so like short, snappy, and. <laughs> Now, most of the questions, there's about 10 in total, are related to your work. But okay. because you spent a bit of time living and working in the UK, I'd be surprised if um, there's a few cultural curveballs, um, <laughs> shall right, I say. Right. Okay, <laughs> I like it. I'm ready. Okay. You're ready? ready? You're ready for some okay. forced fun? Yeah, let's do it. I- I'm already <laughs> smiling. The res life is coming out. Let's go. <laughs> okay, so Snapchat stories or Insta stories? Ooh, um, Insta stories. Chips or crisps? (laughs) 
chips. Dogs or cats? Cats all the way. Woo! Oh, the answer's actually geckos. Obviously, you know, geckos. Yeah, that's uh, that's, yeah I got that wrong. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finish this song. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Oh, results. Oh, yes. Love it. You're allowed back in the country. You're allowed back in the country. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm surprised. I didn't think you'd know that. I'm delighted. <laughs> I mean, come on, Rick um, Astley. Who does oh, that? Look, this is, <laughs> He's this a legend. Is a social media a guy. Come on. This is like peak social media game. Rick rolled. <laughs> uh, bacon bap or bacon barm? Ooh. Bap. Mm, controversial. Uh, team Megan or Team Kate? Oh, gosh, neither. <laughs> oh. That, that's the right answer, Eric. Well done. That's the politically correct answer. Nice. Well done. You've passed nice. the royal uh, family test. <laughs> Memes or GIFs? GIFs, all the way. Good choice. Should Chris skid more or should Chris skid less? Oh, my gosh. That's such a UK <laughs> question. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. It's sadly not even relevant anymore. Yeah, you were so, so hyped was, about this joke. I well. was. Chris, so hyped. Until last week, Chris was the university's minister, uh, but Boris got rid of him. So Chris has skidded. Chris is no more. He is no more or no less. I mean, uh, I, I, I did I did walk past Joe Johnson once uh, when I lived in Marlebone. I don't know if that counts. Yeah, we'll give you that. <laughs> you get points for that. Uh, Ringo or Paul? Oh, Paul, all the way. Although Ringo, when he was doing uh, Thomas the Tank Engine, for sure. And then finally, we're looking for an exclusive here. Yes or no, (laughs) are you the person behind Banter University? Obviously. Oh, look. No, I'm not. I wish I was. You heard it here first, guys. You heard it here first. (laughs) It's the exclusive we were hoping for in episode one. Yeah, no, sorry. (laughs) Sadly, Eric not giving us the exclusive we were looking for there in episode one. Such a shame. Who is the elusive Bancher University on Twitter? We must try and find them, and we're going to try and get them on this podcast eventually. It's the goal of ours to get them on. A big thank you to Eric Stoller for coming on. It was a wonderful chat. And next up, we have another fantastic discussion with Tyler Shores, who chats to us about everything from his PhD research and all things social media. Tyler Shores is currently a research associate and PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. His research interests include digital and print reading, attention spans, digital descriptions, and social media. He also teaches on social media and online communication strategy. Previously, he completed his master's at the University of Oxford and his undergraduate studies at Berkeley, the University of California. At Berkeley as well, he was the course creator and instructor for the Simpsons and Philosophy Class, which obviously we have to touch on at some point. Uh, it became one of the most well-known university courses at the time, appearing in the New York Times, PBS and International Press. Not only that, though, Tyler has also worked with Google in a number of roles. Very interestingly, helped run the Authors at Google program, one of the world's most popular speaker and lecturer series, a project managing numerous events and assisting high-profile events such as Barack Obama's talk in November 2007. He's also written extensively for Wiley Blackwell, publishing chapters in volumes of the Blackwell Philosophy and Popular Culture book series. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This seems great. 
Not at all. It's a pleasure to have you on. And one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on is, uh, for those of you who haven't noticed so far, myself and Rebecca are master's students and Tyler very kindly came over to give a guest lecture for us and discussed a little bit about his PhD research. And ever since then, we've been kind of chatting between ourselves about your research. It's such an interesting world, um, especially on attention spans and the digital scratch and things. And uh, really, our first question is, as professionals in the student affairs sector, we're always trying to get student attention. It's one of the hardest things, most challenging things. Can you share some of the insight that your research has brought up around attention spans and perhaps why it's so difficult to reach students these days? Yes. Um, I mean, there are a lot of challenges for us in um, teaching and education to kind of, because we're competing with a lot of content and the fact that like an informative, um, you know, several minute long podcast segment, um, it's hard to compete sometimes with animal memes and YouTube videos and these sort of things. So how do we get our message across? Because there is more content to watch, um, listen to and read than at any other time in human history, which on the one hand is great, but on the other hand, it does pose challenges. Um, I mean, as a general answer, and I can get more specific into this, I think is that, um, and it does sound kind of hackney, but I feel like there's a lot of truth into this idea that um, in education, in higher education, sometimes we do um, tend to fall into kind of this marketing ease trap, um, which, you know, a lot of um, students and online users are used to hearing. So um, as a general rule of thumb, what I think is important for you and really for all um, kind of like student affairs professionals in general is showing that we do care about this stuff and we care about how it's relevant for their lives. And that can go a long way in like communicating such a message. So when I teach um, students on like social media and like some of these digital productivity skills and academic research skills and all of that. Like it is, a, it is a little bit about addressing, not just, I want you guys to do well, but I also want you to be well in some of these things. And I feel like that at least is uh, part of the way to show that, yeah, it's not just transmitting content, but it is actually social media, uh, you know, like when we take a step back, fundamentally is about um, connecting with human beings. So I think there's something to that. I feel like that's a very um, uh, long-winded way of kind of answering that initial question, but um, it's at least a start. You were talking about more content available than ever before, which is slightly scary thought, but the way, you know, for student affairs professionals to talk about or to show students that we care about social media because we know it's important to you. We know how you live. It's how you live your life today. Do you think, um, and maybe you've come across some of this in your work or just even working in Cambridge or when you were in um, Oxford, do you think there's increased expectations now on staff to be experts on social media, to be able to automatically be able to use it in a way that is appealing to students? Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly within the last several years, that's becoming a thing. And at least I can speak from experience here at Cambridge. Um, so I should also mention that I worked as a social media manager at Stanford University before being in my current post at um, uh, in Cambridge. And uh, that is a full time thing to do social media and manage it well can actually take up, um, you know, almost the entire course of the eight hour workday. And uh, so this idea that higher ed professionals such as yourselves are kind of supposed to just do this on top of everything else that you're already doing um, is a lot to ask. And um, part of the reason that I started doing um, kind of the teaching and sort of this academics and research or social media stuff is that 
Um, the information that existed for us uh, when I got here was uh, kind of outdated. It was very simple stuff in terms of just like, here's a Twitter account, here's how to create one, here's how to post a profile picture, but that is not nearly as useful now as, um, as it is currently, where it's supposed to be the expectation is like, yeah, just start using this and uh, like somehow you should magically know how to use it, which is a lot to take for granted. And um, there, there is a lot of information out there in terms of like, if you wanted to self-study, I'll post a couple links actually, um, maybe as an add-on to the, uh, uh, when we post this on uh, Twitter and all this stuff to kind of people interested in that. Yeah, so um, to kind of uh, show that there are good sources, but there's so much other stuff out there that's just sort of extraneous and it's become a little bit of a, uh, California gold rush sort of industry too, where it's like everyone pretends to be an expert on social media stuff. And for X amount of money, I can show you all the answers and get all the followers and all of these things. But um, that's not really what it's about anymore. That game of just kind of like trying to find as many followers. It doesn't matter if you have uh, 10,000 followers and no one actually reads your content ever. Like that's not doing anyone any good. Uh, what makes more sense I promise I'm, answer, I'm coming about uh, answering your question in a uh, more uh, a roundabout <laughs> that's, sort that's of way. Totally fine. Yeah. And it's just sort of like thinking in terms of like, so if we're, if we're me, say, starting a social media um, account or like wanting to, you know, like, you know, we have this podcast and we're trying to, uh, you know, like reach as many people as possible. Uh, one of the one of the old axioms in uh, Silicon Valley, which is still pretty true, is go where your users already are. It's none of this uh, kind of like, you know, if we build something, all of a sudden users will will magically flock to it. Sometimes uh, that does happen sometimes, but more often than not, we need to actually know where our potential audience actually is. And that takes some homework. Um, which is possible. Like that's the nice thing nowadays that there is so much more data available than there was before. So finding your communities and finding things and be like, who else is online that's um, looking at these things? What are the relevant hashtags? What are the, 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 the adjacent communities in terms of like higher ed folks or, um, uh, you know, mental health uh, folks or anyone that's like interested in these sort of things? Where can we find them? Uh, so that is a place to kind of start, see who's maybe doing something similar, not necessarily the same thing as what you're doing, but like, how do you actually find these and find your social media role models, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, it's good general advice I give in terms of, you know, like who's doing this now and how can we share? Not, it's not a zero sum game thing in social media, but it, it's kind of like, how do I also join this community? Because I sincerely believe that I have something valuable that I want to share with other people too. Um, so that's kind of going, um, I feel, at least I feel in my experience, the rhetoric around this has changed a lot in the past um, decade where social media isn't about, it's not just a numbers game anymore. It is in the sense that you're trying to get people to read and listen and share and do all these things. But um, there's a lot more to it rather than just like how many followers you can find um, and all of these things. So it really is about like finding a community and building a community. And I think a podcast is an excellent way of doing that. So do so we. we. Yeah. <laughs> something actually, something really interesting that you mentioned, and I think is critical to making something like a success nowadays, is you touched quite a bit on sincerity. I think sincerity is really important because perhaps at a time, as you mentioned, it, it once was a numbers game and trying to get as much following as possible. But I find now that the places that are doing this successfully and institutions that are 
that have a good social media presence, there is a, a sense of sincerity and an identity behind the social media. And they're doing it for a sincere reason. And I think that's something that comes across, especially to Generation Z who are using it now much more and it's becoming even more part of their lives. I think that's kind of the challenge we see for a lot of student affairs teams is how to keep that sincerity and how you use it, especially when there are so many different platforms and there's so much out there. I mean, I, I lose track day by day what platforms are out there and what's what's being used. Um, what what From your point of view as kind of a... You are the expert in the room, unfortunately, Tyler. So I'm going to use you as the expert voice. Okay. Um, what what would you kind of see is is hot at the moment? What's being used at the moment? What's the most common thing? Where is it? Where's it going for that generation? I mean, the the simple shorter answer is that uh, video consumption has gone up, you know, and is continuing to go up um, in all the different forms that is. So like we could be talking longer form stuff like YouTube. Um, we could be talking shorter form things like um, uh, the various ways you can do this on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Instagram stories, especially uh, TikTok, we know has just kind of gone exponentially like this. Um, but again, like I, I, I mentioned these things and also want to kind of hedge and say like, yeah, it does make sense to go where users are if that's the group you're doing, but to do it in a way that actually makes sense, because I've seen TikTok is still strange to me. Like I don't fully get it. Maybe that's a function of my age, but it doesn't matter what I get or don't get in terms of like, all right, the fact that like these videos, these short things that look kind of silly to me are getting 50,000 and 100,000 engagements, um, there is an audience there. So, but to do it and to do it well are two different things. Recognizing that something like a TikTok holds a potential amount, a huge potential audience for especially the demographics you might be interested in is one thing, but we also don't want to do this in a way that like comes across authentically, which takes work. That means doing your homework and looking at like TikTok videos and seeing like, can we actually do this? Can, um, if, even if this is our audience, like does this play to our strengths as content providers and these sort of things? And sometimes the answer is no. Because um, the worst thing you want to do is sort of jump on the the kind of like, you know, uh, like, let's also try this because everyone else is trying it and kind of looking like asses um, about it and not necessarily like, you know, then it goes counter the to the uh, uh, the kind of like sincerity approach we're talking about. And it's like, oh, look at these out of touch people like they don't really seem with it and getting to this thing. So it is a bit of a double edged uh, sword when it comes to this. But. Again, like, you know, my, my initial shorter answer is like video. Um, there's no question about that. Short things. We're trying to do uh, a social media book club, for instance, uh, that we're going to be launching in the next couple months here. And the idea behind that, some of our partners have said is like, yeah, pictures of books and, you know, little summaries and lists are great. But like the video stuff is really key. Even if it's just a short video of what it looks like to, um, you know, open this this rare first edition of a Jane Austen book so that people can actually see what it looks like in person. I was like, all right, so we're definitely in the age of like moving images now and these sort of things. So that is a challenge for some, but um, it is at least something to be aware of, I think, as a possibility. I'm glad you said that you find TikTok a little strange because I do too. And I'm generally quite brave at trying different social media platforms when they come out. I'll investigate them. I may join. There are maybe two or three that I would use regularly for work or personal reasons. Um, but TikTok, I think you know, I could put money on me not 
on me never joining TikTok. I, I'll scroll through it and see what's happening. So, you know, I, I remain down with the kids. You're down with the kids <laughs> still, yeah. You're, you're yeah. still on, you're still in touch. I still feel I'm like 20 years too old to join TikTok. But... <laughs> I, do, I do not understand TikTok. <laughs> No, but talking about um, that platform in particular, we do see some universities um, now starting to play with it and use it. Do you think, Tyler, you might get to a stage where, um, you know, students might look at um, a university's social media profile and maybe decide whether that university is or not for them based on what the, how they talk about themselves and, you know, what's the, the brand on social media? Is that going to make an impact on students' decision to go to a particular uni? Gosh, I think it already is, in my opinion. Um, like, in, I've had conversations with uh, different universities, uh, even talking to the folks here at Cambridge in terms of that. And there has been a conscious shift I've noticed in the last few years in terms of like, um, it seemed like a very five years ago thing to um, uh, kind of show off, like, you know, say like old buildings in Cambridge or like, look how cool this statue or structure is. And I was like, that's fine. That's very, um, uh, kind of like a, a digital age version of the college catalog or university catalog to be like, you could be here too. And you could be the one like, you know, seeing all these cool things and what feels like it's hard to, hard to prove these sort of things, but I feel like they're starting to realize universities and educational institutions is that, well, I mean, yeah, these things are about pretty buildings and trees and artistic stuff that gets Instagram uh, likes, but universities are really about people. Like they're fundamentally connected in terms of just sort of like the people that make it up, the people that go there, work there, learn there. And I'm seeing more of kind of a human focus and be like, you know, that is a way to establish contact and highlighting things that someone is like, you know, uh, Cambridge has been highlighting, uh, for instance, um, women in STEM, which good for them. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen this before in terms of highlighting this person who comes from a non-traditional background is now working on a PhD in, you know, evolutionary biology or some sort of other like hard sciencey kind of thing. Like that realness of just sort of communicating these kind of personal stories is a, I feel like it's a step in the right direction. But to answer your question, um, yeah, I think it matters. I don't know how much it matters, but I think uh, organizational, institutional uh, brand and awareness on social media has to be a factor. And I can kind of just tell based on how much time and resources universities are um, allocating to these, all of these platforms, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and whatever. And it's like, it does matter. And um, I think it's being uh, taken notice of. But kind of looking at students, we hear constantly, like I suppose um, anecdotally, that social media contributes to poor mental health and that maybe some of the issues that we're seeing in student mental health are because of increased social media and comparing themselves to people online and unrealistic expectations. Have you come across anything in your research or maybe read anything in the last couple of years that kind of says that, yeah, increased social media does contribute to poor mental health? Yeah, um, I think that's becoming more of a thing. Like the, uh, the, there were certainly some slow drum beats on this within the last uh, several years that I feel like is becoming increasingly a thing where they're starting to talk about like how do we do health guidelines around these things. Um, uh, like you know, uh, I'm actually going to be talking about that at our uh, Festival of Science event uh, next month in terms of uh, like how do we create healthier habits and mindsets around some of our screen time use and app use and social media stuff. Um, I guess like the, the quickest way I could answer is like, yeah, there's for people interested in this topic in particular, I really like Matt Haig's book. 
um, Notes on a Nervous Planet. I thought it was really good. It's kind of a series, like a very readable, um, kind of like a bunch of mini one or two page essays where he kind of um, like humorously, but very thoughtfully addresses some of these things. And he talks specifically about um, social media in terms of uh, um, commodification of basically every kind of experience we can imagine now and how kind of disturbing this is, um, how it contributes to things like body image, body image for men, not just women. Body image is a thing that um, when I teach social media stuff, I love pointing out the uh, uh, you may or may not have come across this, the Instagram versus reality um, kind of like. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Where it's just sort of like, yeah, these, these people have been, you know, filtered and photoshopped to the point of barely being human looking. And then, <laughs> and like, it's, a thing. it's a little uncanny valley looking. And then when you see the behind the scenes photos, like, oh, they're actually like real people. So like treating treating social media and Instagram is sort of like a form of fiction now is probably a healthy mindset in terms of like, look at me, I'm on a boat. Look at me, I'm, you know, doing this thing or I look like this. And it was like, yeah, but this is like, these are curated, ed edited things that aren't necessarily reflective of real life. We talked about, we mentioned this super briefly, but the whole screen time thing, and I think this is becoming more of a known thing, but the blue light in the screens, whenever we have an LCD screen, like a, you know, an iPhone screen or a tablet screen or something, it's like shining a big light bulb in front of our face. And we usually hold it very close to our face. And that is terrible for our sleep. It's terrible for us people our age. It's much worse for people, if we're talking about the generation Z and all this, when they they need more sleep and they are spending more time online late at night, you know, um, in bed on a pillow, like, you know, with the screen in front of their face, like there's all these, um, you know, images, both from real life and uh, popular culture now, that being, a, you know, a pretty normal everyday part of life. That is so bad for us. It's bad for us because of our sleep, but the sleep stuff um, comes up in a number of ways. We... Uh, uh, basically for the for younger people to us to an extent too but for say like a generation younger than us chronic sleep deprivation that comes from screens and these sort of things is basically a form of brain damage in terms of what it's doing to our brains in terms of what it's doing because like you know we can't remember as well we can't think as well there's study that shows we don't even look as good when we're sleep deprived and that we don't like you know it's bad for our physical health as far as mental health and all these things that I do worry about is sort of like a, uh, a one of those like hidden epidemic things that maybe isn't that hidden anymore. But the the effects on sleep and what that does to our long term well being is kind of a biggie. It's interesting, and I think one of the really difficult parts is probably media in general's best part and also worst part, insofar as it essentially tailors for us as an individual. And it tailoring is fantastic because you find the content you're looking for, you find the people you're looking for, the videos you're looking for, but on the flip side, it sucks you in. And because of that tailoring, you get stuck. And I, I'm, when I say I'm not a massive social media person, it also, I suppose, depends on your definition. I waste hours on YouTube but I use it for lots of different things. I use it for news. I use it for entertainment. I use it for pretty much a TV replacement nowadays. So I could Rob, pretty much be honest, my TV. be honest, Rob, you're watching cat, cat videos, be honest. <laughs> well, I might've been at some point today. I can't barely remember. This is also the problem, isn't it? You forget what you've been doing, but, but I guess that's, that's the, the beauty and also the beast of it is that it tailors itself beautifully, but it's so easy to get sucked in to that world. 
Yeah. And I, I have thoughts on that, too, that I've been thinking about the kind of like the way in which we talk about these sort of things that we, we get addicted or our attention span feels, um, you know, really bad. and We're constantly distracted. But um, kind of one of the messages, you know, um, th that I hope comes through is that it's not really our fault, per se, that like all of these things are designed this way for a reason, like the Facebooks and the Googles of the world have an army of like psychology and uh, social behavior researcher people that make us want to click. There is a reason why the notification has that sound, that color, that specific color of red, these sort of things, because it knows what it's going to push our buttons and basically draw us in. So even just being aware of that, I feel like on some level is is a good thing to know is that, hey, their number one goal is like, yeah, they provide content and news and entertainment and all these things, which I'm not anti-distractions or anti any of these things by any means. But for all of us, there is some sort of line between like enjoyable and, you know, kind of like, you know, this is a fine amount, a moderate amount to kind of like we do get sucked in and it kind of like does diminish your quality of life at some point. Everyone's line's going to be a little bit different, but we all have some sort of threshold in which the distractions become more harmful than uh, helpful. And there's a um, there's a blog post I did. I'll share this one too. I'm going to make a note to myself um, for the Freedom app. Um, I like it in terms of like an anti-distraction um, app is that I think it's a, it has like a paid subscription thing that's uh, relatively low price. But the cool thing about it is you can sync it on all your devices and you can do it ahead of time. So for me, I had a problem with checking the phones first thing in the morning. Uh, you know, it's like before I done anything else, before coffee, and all of these things. And I was like, oh, but then I go into reactive mode in terms of like, oh, I feel like I should respond to this even now. Now it's not really a good time to do this, whatever. So anti-distraction apps like a freedom or like a screen time kind of carve out that quiet time in that. It was like for me, like, you know, can't check this stuff, not even email or text messages first thing in the morning for the first hour. And you get a much more sense of control over that rather than being inundated by all the stuff that um, you're not fully awake enough to process anyways. Um, it just like adds a level of calm. So um, in case that's interesting for anyone, I'll kind of share some of the tips I use to how to like, you know, you know, like make sure you create like, you know, leisure reading time where you can actually spend time off of the screen or like, you know, thinking time that's just away. And if anyone also having certain boundaries that um, for those of us that are fortunate enough to do that, to be like, okay, um, I'm not going to be online today or this number of hours. If you need to reach me, uh, tough. Um, it'll have to wait a little while. And I think that's actually, for the most part, okay. But anyways, the whole boundary thing is something to think about. I'll share that article. Tying in nicely to kind of the uh, one of the few final points, I guess, and is something I'd be really interested to hear your take on, is ultimately if we were to sort of summarize how you would look at social media and try and be as effective as possible and taking all of the different sides and different opinions on it into account. How, what's your advice on being effective on social media? Now, obviously effective is somewhat subjective yeah. as to what you're using it for. Um, but what do you think is, what tips would you give people if they were the, just starting into the world and they never seen it before? What would you warn them about? What would you advise them to do, advise them not to do, or how would you phrase it for people? Hmm. Um, 
I mean, it's still, I feel like it's still a lot more art than sciences. Like you kind of learn by doing. Um, that's really the best advice I could give from doing it over many years. Um, that's not necessarily a satisfying um, answer, but there is a difference between working smarter and working harder when it comes to social media. So like not being, I don't personally like being on social media all the time. I don't have my notifications on generally speaking. So um, there are tools like Buffer or Hootsuite or um, other social media managing things where you can schedule posts in advance so that um, you can certainly like, you know, be sharing things and being active online. So this might be um, something like, a, you know, a user like you, Rob, would be interested in and be like, all right, I want to be active, but I don't want to spend all my time on this. So you could spend, um, you know, say one chunk of time scheduling posts and sharing things that you want to share, but not necessarily feel like you're on call with social media all the time, which in a way is kind of liberating. But making use of things like Twitter lists that I've talked about, um, like looking for your your role models in terms of like whether it's a uh, whether it's a Seth or a, um, uh, any number of things that you kind of like, you know, find like, yeah, I really like this person's message and I really like the way they go about doing things. I feel like is another way to kind of see like, what is it that other people are doing that strikes a chord for you? And like, you know, could, um, are there ways I could kind of adopt this sort of thing and, um, you know, like tap into existing communities? Um, those are very short, like kind of high level summary points, but I feel like those are, those are the things that I would sum up over the past, like, you know, decade plus of using social media stuff. Um, we do have one final question, Tyler, yeah. because we are absolutely fascinated by the fact that you created and delivered a class about the Simpsons and philosophy. Um, I wish I had that when I was at uni. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I totally yeah. would have taken that. Yeah, it would be absolutely um, remiss of us not to ask you a bit about that class, how it came about. And um, I guess some of like it, it went a little bit viral, didn't it? It got lots of international press. So yeah, you wouldn't cool. mind sharing a few thoughts about that and um, where you got the idea from it, because it seems like a really fantastic way to actually engage uh, students. Yeah, I mean, really, this should be its own podcast episode. There's so much to talk yeah. about. <laughs> we can arrange it. <laughs> I was say, we, we could arrange that. Um, we know some people who are doing a podcast. <laughs> uh, let's see. So, I mean, um, this was a while ago. So this was uh, closer to 20 years ago than not. Oh, my God. 20 years ago. Wow. Um, yeah. So, like, the idea originally came from uh, there was a book called The Simpsons and Philosophy that was, like, slightly, slightly ahead of my time. But it was just a series of essays um, about, like, you know, it's like, oh, here, here are ways to talk about Marx or Kant or these sort of things through various Simpsons episodes. Um, I thought the approach was very interesting. And you got to remember close to 20 years ago, um, like introducing popular culture into classrooms is sort of like, oh, this is silly. Like this is this is what our, you know, our, our money is going towards in higher education and all of that. So part of the reason for the course was to kind of illustrate, take that basic premise and turn it into a proper uh, course. So in my case, it was an introductory uh, philosophy course for undergrads. Um, at Berkeley. And the idea behind it was like, yeah, we are going to like go through an introduction of Western philosophy, meaning Plato and Socrates, all the way through Marx and Nietzsche and Kant and Foucault and all of these things and some other large topics like ethics and morality and even religion. And we're going to do it through Simpsons episodes. And the reason why I really want you to do this, not necessarily because it's a class about the Simpsons and we're going to try to understand the philosophy of the Simpsons, which was kind of the opposite of that. You 
was to use the Simpsons opportunistically to show that as like philosophy is really everywhere. Like it's in our everyday life, whether we recognize it or not, we're being philosophers. And I'll prove it by showing that we even think about, we engage with these things um, in an everyday way, even when we're watching episodes of The Simpsons because of these things that are, you know, humorous, but also like thought provoking at the same time. So um, yeah, at the time it was a very novel approach and I certainly didn't expect it. Um, gosh, it was my first time really teaching a course and um, the demand, I think it was just the right place at the right time. I wanted about 15 to 20 students because I'd never really run a course before. And the, the, the short version is we ended up with uh, 580 people showing up. Wow. And, uh, no yeah. pressure, Tyler. Yeah. Say, oh, that's great for your first class. Yeah, it was great, but also terrifying and also still I one bet. of the best things I've done in terms of just sort of like, oh my goodness, what's going on? I, I couldn't take that many students. So I ended up taking maybe 100 or something that first mm. time because there was such a demand for it. I was like, gosh, I can now I can't really not teach it because so many people want to do it. So it, it ended up being a kind of a life of its own sort of thing. And um, um, had a lot of students over the years and um, it was cool. It was, it was sort of one of these things like, oh, did you hear about this class they're doing at, at Berkeley in California and all of that. And so we were one of the, the very early ones to kind of really seriously talk about drawing popular culture sources in an academically legitimate way. And I thought that was something, it's still something I'm very proud of because it was fun and also engaging. So folks, there you have it. Two great interviews with both Eric and Tyler. I hope you found them really beneficial. There was quite a lot in that that stood out to me. And I think some things I'll be taking both into my uh, personal life as well as my professional life as well. What about you, Rob? What's that for you? It was really interesting, really engaging stuff. I, I particularly enjoyed all of it, but there were some really interesting elements. It was really fascinating with Tyler talking about effects on sleep. Obviously, it's something I kind of knew and something I kind of picked up from media, funnily enough, but not quite into that detail. It was quite interesting to see how much of an impact that's having. And I can really see that there could be a transition with health and sleep hygiene and stuff. And that was that was pretty concerning. And certainly with Eric, it's just, I mean, he's such a, a really engaging and fascinating guy. And you can really see how much experience he's had both here and in the US. And it, it really shows but for me, the thing that always sticks out with Eric's interview is the don't fall in love with the tools line. That's kind of the, like my main highlight of the whole thing. I just think that's such a beautifully put phrase on how we need to think about all technology in higher education. It's it's not falling in love, falling in love with something. It's not committing your whole, it's not putting all your eggs in one basket. It's a really nice way of thinking of things. Mm, and I think both of them had lots of tips and advice um, for emerging and more um, well-established student affairs professionals. I love how Eric in particular has used his experience in student affairs and made it applicable to his current role. You know, he talked about some people saying, oh, you're just a vendor now, you don't work with students. But actually, he really cares mm. about the student experience. And for me, that stood out. And I find that's really, really important. And it makes him quite authentic and very genuine as well. Yeah, 100%. And it also ties into a lot of what Tyler was talking about. I think Tyler's point on social media being both something that's really useful for people who are really engaged in it and really see the passion in it, but then equally, it's totally fine for it to not be that and for it actually to, to have your boundaries and to know where everything stands, I think. And his experience as a social media manager was prime example of that. I think it's quite helpful, hopefully, for a lot of people out there to hear 
and to have that backing from somebody to acknowledge that it is a full-time job. If, if that is your job, it is a full-time commitment trying to get that right and to get that authentically for an institution is really, really challenging. And it's, it's not just something that can be just thrown on somebody. No, and a full-time job, that needs to be compensated adequately as well. If you're going to ask people who work full-time as receptionists or as, you know, student advisors, if you're going to ask them to take on the extra responsibility of running a social media channel, whether it's one or five or ten, you know, make sure they're compensated for that as well. That's really, really important. Mm. And that should be um, a key priority for lots of departments and universities. Now that we have episode one in the bag, safe to say, we're going to be consistent and we've got episode two coming up now at the end of March so what can everyone look forward to well the focus for this one will be on supporting international students we will be speaking with the chief executive Anne-Marie Graham from Yukiza and talking about the legalities around being international student the visa implications Brexit but also the role of Yukiza and how they fit into all of that and in addition to that we will be talking to Joe Bloxham from Kingfolk and we'll be doing a little special um, focusing on international students from China and cultural norms, cultural expectations, I suppose, busting some myths around Chinese students, what they like, what they don't like, how to engage with them. They are a difficult cohort to engage with. And so I hope we're looking forward to that one as well. We are certainly looking forward to talking to both Anne-Marie and Joe. Absolutely. Yeah, we're really looking forward to that episode. Obviously, it's a subject very close to my heart. So hopefully we do it justice for everybody out there. I'm really looking forward to speaking to both of them, both experts in their field with really fascinating work experience across the sector as well. So it is bound to be a really, really interesting episode. But we hope that this one has been really engaging for you, especially if it's something that perhaps you are really actively involved in, or even if you're not actively involved in, that it's perhaps struck a chord for you at some point. Further to the use of social media, we must hark back to the most important point of this episode is that we will be having a Twitter poll for the use of the jingle from now on in this podcast. So do keep an eye out for that. It will be going out pretty much at the same time as this episode. So do keep an eye out for that on our Twitter account is at Free Food Pod, and do check us out there. And also, if you've any feedback, comments, ideas, don't hesitate to contact us. We're not shy on social media, as you're probably aware. You can tweet us at Free Food Pod, or you can drop us an email, freefoodpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and thank you to everybody who's reached out to us so far. It's been really great engaging with you all. It really has. And please, yeah, please do keep that going. We want to hear from you. And especially if you think you have something that you'd like to contribute or an area you think you'd like us to cover. We are not necessarily set in stone. We have pretty much season one tied up. However, we're not just going to stop there. We're looking into the future. If you do have something you'd like to share with us, whether that even be a journal article, or whatever it may be, please send it to us. We're more than welcome to have it. And we're really looking forward to your contributions. Until episode two, everybody, thank you for listening in. It's been a fantastic experience for both of us so far, getting this podcast off the ground. And we can't wait to bring you episode two. 